Hey everyone, back again. Today I want to talk about Rosa Luxemburg's pamphlet, essay, text, titled Reform or Revolution, or Social Reform or Revolution. Now before jumping into this, hi, I'm David. I try to explain philosophical concepts and ideas in ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, subscribe, and you'll see videos I release every week, sometimes twice a week. You can go check out my some 250 episodes I already have up in which I try to explain all these concepts in accessible ways. Uh, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can follow me follow me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. If you want to help me out, you can like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure to do that. If you found this in podcast form, you're going to be able to find the video on YouTube. Or if you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find the audio in podcast form pretty much anywhere where you get podcasts. Where... Uh, you know, if you're into that, then do that. There should be links for everything in the description. You can go and click away and do all those magical clicking things. Now, let's jump into this important, short, complicated text that Luxembourg gives us. Now, this text is primarily a response or a pushback against the work of Edward Bernstein, among others. So she's going to talk about other people like Schmidt and Wolf and, and other people who belong to the camp of socialism without Marxism, which is the way I'm putting it. This isn't the term she uses, but these are people who advocate for socialism while still clinging to capitalism. They try to imagine a world in which socialism is possible so long as the capitalist system remains intact, which for Luxembourg, and she's dead right about this, is an oxymoron. It's just a contradiction. You cannot have both operating at the same time. And this is her way to demonstrate why these thinkers are all, essentially, they, they have no idea what they're talking about and what a proper social revolution would look like. Now for Luxembourg, she suggests that Bernstein, among other social democrats and other quasi-socialists, they believe that workers are mistreated. They believe that people are being exploited by capitalists. And they see that those issues should be ameliorated. That is, the working lives of people should be uh, improved so that they aren't being exploited, so that they have good wages, so that they aren't working 16, 17, 18 hours a day, so that they get time off, everything like that, which is all, I mean, I think we'd all agree, these are good things. They take this a step further though to say that this is actually the route toward socialism. And Luxembourg is immediately like, no. And the reason that this is not the case is that for socialism to be properly socialistic, it must correspond to three basic tenets in order to really comply with what she and Marx call scientific socialism. And they are, well, the first one is that Capital, capitalism grows increasingly anarchistic, and it is through its anarchism that it motivates itself to collapse. Secondly, it creates the conditions for social production, and this might seem to be um, kind of counterintuitive for anyone listening right now. You might think, capitalism fosters social production? How? And I'll explain that, but for now, this is just one of the tenets of capitalism to actually become more social as it progresses. And then thirdly, it creates the conditions through which proletarian people, through which working people grow conscious 
of their exploitation and grow conscious of the, the problems at hand. Now, she says that these socialists, the bad kind, these kind of reformist socialists like Bernstein, agree with the second and third premises or characteristics of capitalism. That is that it motivates itself towards social production and it elevates class consciousness. They agree with that. However, they don't seem to think that capitalism naturally progresses to its own demise, which is something that Marx very much uh, pointed out in his three volumes of Capital. Capitalism is a, a non, or it's, it, it is an unsustainable system. It is always going to be motivating itself towards its own demise because it exists on various contradictions. Some of these contradictions include a falling rate of profit over the course of time. It also includes extracting labor that is not actually properly compensated, which can only go for a certain amount of time. It produces situations in which there's overproduction, as is the, you know, as is the case with any kind of unchecked production or exploitation of labor, which can only lead to eventual crises and collapse and catastrophes. So to be clear, these socialist reformists believe that capitalism is not in itself contradictory. They believe that capitalism can be saved if there is the right governmental oversight, the right work being done to introduce policy that improves its conditions. Now, Luxembourg doesn't buy this. Luxembourg says that just by shifting around some money doesn't alter the very foundation of the capitalist economy. And the capitalist economy, to put it as simply as possible, and to be as really get at the heart of the contradiction of the capitalist mode of production is that it undervalues labor while overvaluing the things that labor makes. That is, it takes more from labor, which comprises the majority of people, that is workers, takes more out of them than it gives back, which is just primarily, it's fundamentally untenable. And that won't change if the people are given a raise because if suddenly the people were actually given what they earned capitalists in terms of what capitalists sell on the market then the capitalist system would crumble because then capitalists wouldn't make a profit so if people are just given a raise there's still going to be the distinction between what a product is sold for and what it is paid for in terms of labor which is a gulf that isn't going to be bridged just by giving them more money so it might improve the situation if workers earn a little bit more. It might make people's lives better. But ultimately what it is doing is it's kicking the can down the road of the capitalist mode of production and making it so that people are happy at the moment, all the while extending its duration, making it so that the crisis doesn't come quickly. It'll just come maybe in a few extra years time. So in this way, these socialist reformists view socialism not as a necessary final goal of the capitalist system or of the proletarian resistance to the capitalist system. Instead, they view socialism as just another kind of capitalism, like a reformist capitalism that has been revised to be a kind of teddy bear capitalism, a kind of nice 
capitalism for the people. And they suggest that capitalism can do this because it is primarily adaptive. And this is probably something we've all heard before. Capitalism is different from other systems in that it is able to adapt. It is able to adapt to the needs of the people in ways that other systems are ill-equipped to adapt to, to, to these needs. And one of the ways that it does this is with the introduction of credit. And we really, Marx really unpacks this a lot in Capital Volume 3, which I hope to cover on here soon. I'm reading it now. It's like a thousand pages. I'm taking so many notes on it, and I'll hopefully start presenting that soon on here. So stay tuned for that. But Marx discusses in that text the way that credit functions and how credit motivates industry. And it makes sense. Because now you're able to, if you're a capitalist or you want to be one, you can borrow money and open up a business. Whereas without credit, you couldn't have opened up that business because you didn't have money. So it would appear as though that credit is a way to stifle off any possible um, contractions in the economy. Because if there are any uh, contractions, you can just borrow money from somebody else, pay them back later, uh, and you'll be able to keep your industry growing. You'll be able to keep things afloat. But Luxembourg shows, really going back to Marx himself, is that credit doesn't actually improve the situation. It actually accelerates crises and accelerates the possible final collapse. And it does this because credit motivates overproduction. If you have credit, it means that you aren't really going to be listening to this so-called thing of supply and demand. You're going to be more prepared to invest your money in ways that are uh, irresponsible. And more people are going to be opening businesses. More people are going to be competing, encouraging overproduction. And with overproduction comes crises because suddenly you have all of these products out on the market that aren't being bought because very few people are actually there to buy these things which creates a situation in which you are not earning the proper capital to keep your system, your industry afloat. And as we've seen time and time again with crises in a capitalist economy, is that if there is a crisis localized to a specific nation, it will have a ripple effect all across the world just because of the interconnected nature of these markets. And it, and it makes sense. It would necessarily follow then that any minute issue in one place can have detrimental effects somewhere else. And it was also in, you know, in 2008, uh, that crisis was very much motivated by credit, by loans being given out to people without any kind of scruples, without any care to assess whether or not these loans can be paid. And eventually it'll come to the point where people will have to pay back these loans. And if you look at any nation's kind of uh, debt index, it's quite worrisome to know that so much of industry, so much of any country's GDP is founded upon more debt than production, which is kind of a bigger question, the relationship of debt to wealth and the relationship of debt to the ability to print money and, and everything, and I don't want to get into that now, but it's just important to acknowledge that credit, despite what these socialist reformists are saying, credit is a way to accelerate crises and to intensify crises, not to adapt the system to meet new needs, to be able to adapt the system to make it invaluable. It will always be valuable, just that's the nature of the capitalist economy with crises occurring every 10, 15, 20 years, and credit will only exacerbate those crises. Now what these social reformists, these socialist reformists 
almost seem to want to be doing is making every they, they live under an illusion that everybody can be rich that almost everyone could be bourgeois when the fact is that the only way the capitalist economy can work is if there is a serious gulf a serious separation between rich people and poor people and that is what creates the conditions for there to be rich people so in certain nations it might be seen that there is a general elevation in the standard of living but this is mostly due to the fact that industries can be offshored to places where cheap labor can be bought where other people are going to be exploited so that people in other countries can really enjoy cheap commodities which will elevate their standard of living but it will always come at the expense of another group another uh, of another nation that are going to be duped going to be exploited under this economy so it's impossible to say that all people can just live as rich people under the system and that is because the only way to be rich under this system is for people to be poor so to say otherwise to say that everyone can be rich is to submit oneself to an ideal illusion to idealism not in the german idealist sense but idealism in living in a fantasy world in which capitalism doesn't have these contradictions and luxembourg opposes that to a dialectical approach that acknowledges the real historical and material conditions including the contradictions of capital including the contradictions of wage labor of finite resources and a finite planet acknowledging all of these real material things to show almost definitively that the system is unsustainable and the only alternative will come about once these certain conditions have been met as it has naturally run its course which conflicts with some other approaches to the formation of socialism that says that it has to be done like immediately overnight that that would be wrong to some extent but also it demands a little bit of a qualification where luxembourg says in this text and in others that uh, it can be forced but it will likely fail which isn't uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it shouldn't be done again the point is just that that was not the right moment and so it should be encouraged repeatedly in order for the system to properly be overhauled to properly transform into socialism now one of the other ways that bernstein and the socialist reformists view the capitalist economy in a positive light is they see it becoming more socialized which i said might seem kind of counterintuitive to most people and we get this in marx in the third volume of capital where he says that as loans as stock as credit become bigger parts of the capitalist economy suddenly people who otherwise couldn't have entered the capitalist economy as capitalists can participate in it so many people can contribute to the stock market and technically own part of a company in a way that a worker wouldn't and so they can enter into that domain something that was previously foreclosed to them and this is a good thing in a kind of marxist sense because it points to the possibility of social ownership of these means of production but at the same time of course there are risks present here in that the, the system as it exists now is not sustainable in itself all that it serves for Luxembourg and, and other Marxists is a possible pretense 
for a different way of organizing the system in a more social fashion, in socialistic fashion. Whereas the socialist reformists like Bernstein suggest instead that that is a sign that capitalism itself can be socialist. That capitalism itself can be a social system founded for or existing for the people and the workers at hand. And they also use this argument to say that capitalism is the system par excellence that can really usher in democracy. This is perhaps something we've all heard at some point that capitalism and democracy go hand in hand. And while democracy is something that we should always be, uh, we should always fight for, it's important to acknowledge that capitalism did not breed democracy. Democracy existed long before capitalism and capitalism existed not necessarily with democracy. There were, like in the case of like Russia or other despotic regimes, capitalism could flourish in other settings, not just democratic ones. So it's important not to fall into the trap that capitalism is somehow fostering a kind of social interaction vis-a-vis -vis democracy as that uh, realization of social interaction and social political power, not to fall prey to the illusion that capitalism is what births democracy, which is something I think we would all agree is a good thing that we should be fighting for. And that brings us to a more maybe specific question of the state itself and what the state's role is in relation to capitalism, where Bernstein and other social reformists suggest that the state is something that should help to mediate capitalism through its growing complexity, which then motivates the possibility of democratic participation within the capitalist economy, signaling more social participation, which they just associate with being a good thing. Now, the thing is that Luxembourg very, I think very clearly and very importantly points out is that the state serves not the people's ends, serves not the people's wants and needs in this situation. It more serves the interests of the ruling classes and of capitalism in general, where the state will work at the behest of capital in order to open up new markets through militarism, maybe to engage in certain competitive acts through tariffs against other capitalists. Maybe it'll work in such a way as to subordinate working populations to the will of these ruling classes. So it's really wrong to suggest that the state's intervention within the capitalist economy is going to just magically push us into a socialistic dimension within capitalism. So Luxembourg suggests that these thinkers kind of all they're suggesting is almost like a, a return to a pre-capitalist time like feudalism where workers might have a kind of common stake on, a, on, a, on an already owned piece of property by a feudal lord, but that doesn't actually undo that dynamic, which is in itself fundamentally oppressive. And it's important to acknowledge that in, the Mar in Marx and in Engels' work, Capitalism is a necessary stage of human development. It's something that humanity must pass through in order to arrive at communism or socialism at the end. The point is to maintain that truth, that it must move past capitalism and not to cling on to capitalism as being the be-all, end-all, simply because it's, it's untenable if you consider all the things already mentioned, including, you know, the impending climate disaster that is, uh, that it is really encouraging and is really motivating us toward. So how does reform and revolution differ? Well, it would be wrong to say that it is just 
about time, where reform takes a long time and revolution is instantaneous or spontaneous. There, that is some element of it, but that's only part of the story. Luxembourg says instead that we are duping ourselves if we think that it is only a matter of time. Instead, it must pertain to or must be a distinction between an approach that sees socialism as the final end, the final goal, versus approaches that only want to keep us in a suspended state of teddy bear capitalism, just keeping it somewhat good for a few people so that it stays afloat, so that it doesn't collapse, and can then essentially exist potentially forever until that eventual collapse. A revolutionary mindset might actually take a long time, but as long as it acknowledges the fundamental inconsistencies or contradictions of the capitalist economy and sees, sees socialism as the final goal, and it does so through successive steps like repeated efforts on the part of proletarian, uh, the proletarian class to seize power, as long as it's doing this, which might take a long time, and it might even look like a ref like successive reforms to some extent, where it's like little changes, because we don't actually know how this will play out. As long as it has this final goal in its sights, that is a sign of a revolutionary mindset as opposed to a reformist mindset that only wants to keep the same system intact. And Bernstein and others were very much familiar with this line of thought, and they suggested and this is something we'd certainly, we could hear today, where they say that, oh, the revolutionary mindset isn't actually intent on accomplishing anything. So they set impossible goals as the end, as the end goal. And then they can say, well, until we've actually done this thing, nothing is worth doing. The only real project is a revolutionary one, which is just a straw man kind of uh, bad faith argument where the revolutionary mindset for Luxembourg is one that can happen in successive steps, but that always has its mind on that final goal, however it'll be accomplished. Whereas these other folks will make small real life changes, but that don't actually improve conditions uh, for everyone and will instead keep the system intact for as long as possible before its eventual final collapse that won't, at, at which point there won't necessarily be a class consciousness. To craft a socialist economy out of the ashes, out of the ruins of a failed capitalist one, if it, that is if it goes on for too long. And yeah, that pretty much covers this text. There are other little details in there that I didn't go into a lot of detail about because there, there are quite a few little things uh, and you have to go read it. It's short, so you wouldn't be wasting your time, but I, I think that this was a fair introduction. If there's anything that you think I really should have included, I'd love to hear about it. Or anything I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, you know how to let me know in the comments. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform that lets you leave reviews, you could do it there. You could leave five stars. That would help me out. Uh, and yeah, catch you next time. Take care.